I'm about to tell you about my back problems. This is getting worse and worse. Oh, yeah? So you're kneeling down. What are you going to do now? You have to lie down. I don't know. I just need to suffer through. I need painkillers. Now, this is when yeah. it would be good to have access to a surgical theater or just some good meds or a good anesthetist. Put me out of my misery. Uh, are you, are you going to make it through? You think you'll be yeah, all right? Yeah, I'll be good. I'll be good. Right, all right. If I, if I hear you talking through gritted, gritted teeth, I'll know that you were lying <laughs> earlier on. I'm fine. I'm fine, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, back it up. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Rosica. And my name's Andres Lorente. And every week or every couple weeks on the Two Real Cinema Club, we go out and see a new film or uh, or we stream it, I guess. And then we excavate some artifactual uh, <laughs> film from the past to compare the two. Usually they are related in theme. And uh, this week we've got uh, American Fiction, the new film featuring uh, Jeffrey Wright. And we're comparing that to 1961's A Raisin in the Sun based on the play from uh, Lorraine Hansberry, featuring Sidney Poitier and Ruby Dee. Which I said, actually, now, this is a film, the old film is a film that I had never heard of, never seen, never had any idea of at all. Okay. And I'm guessing this is, this is part of some big American canon, which I'm not aware of. It's completely passed me by. Yeah, I think actually um, some of my students are reading it in school right now. Mm. And guess what? I'm now an official member of the Two Real... Uh, Cinema Club Book Club. Oh. Uh, I read the play. Oh, well, congratulations, because I am still a member of the Two Real Cinema Club Book Club because I read the book that American Fiction is based oh, on. Oh, my. <laughs> this is almost turning into a book podcast. No, just when I thought I was going to be the hero this week, <laughs> of course you want up me. <laughs> that's excellent. So, um, um, that's Erasure, is that right? I had never heard of it. That is Erasure, yes, oh, okay. which I, I always assumed was a like, was a fan book about the, uh, the late 90s pop duo oh. uh erasure but it turns out no it's actually it's a fiction book um there's, there's going to be a real workout for the language sensor machine uh, oh. this week on the pod i'm i'm going to be going back and digitally bleeping out a lot of bad words <laughs> i reckon in this episode because it's going to be difficult to talk about uh especially talk about the first oh. film without swearing a lot that's true yeah uh-huh. i will boy so i'm not going to be the problem this week because you're going to be talking about that first <laughs> film You'll have to say the word. I will have to say the word. I have to say the word many times, actually. So, uh, American Fiction, uh, currently up for a bunch of Oscars. Um, first film directed and written by Cord Jefferson. Oh, I had no idea who this was. I had to look him up. Did you know who this guy was? Uh, no, I hadn't. I hadn't seen anything from him, yeah. So, is this his first feature film, but he has been a TV writer. So, he yeah. wrote The Good Place. Did you watch that? Uh, a few episodes, yes. Okay, right. Master of None, which I did not watch. The Watchmen TV series. I saw the film. Uh, never saw the TV series. Okay. Uh, so he's come from TV. Uh, he has adapted Erasure by Percival Everett. Um, and I thought it was pretty good. Do you want me, uh, shall I tell you the story? Please, yes. So, American fiction uh, is uh, a film set today uh, in modern-day Los Angeles, uh, all about Monk, uh, 
He is a, a spiky college English professor uh, who writes highly academic, highly esoteric novels that no one reads. Um, uh, I can sympathise with that. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, in the, in the um, opening of the film, um, he is uh, offending all of his students. Uh, he is a, you know, a spiky, difficult guy to like. He's booked for an appearance at a book festival. And while he's there, his his little seminar is completely overshadowed uh, by Sinatra Golden, another writer whose book Wheeze Lives in the Ghetto uh, is a, a cliche ridden smash hit black book. Uh, and if only there was some way to draw uh, inverted commas on a podcast. Yeah. So uh, so Monk, seeing the reaction that Sintara's book has got, he decides that he will write his own inverted commas black inverted commas book. Uh, and over a weekend, he types out a hackneyed litery, litany of stereotypes and he calls it Maya Pathology. And surprise, surprise, the book is an instant hit. Uh, so Monk is offered uh, three quarters of a million dollars for it. His agent is delighted. Um, but while he cringes at his success, uh, he also has to cope with family crises, mm-hmm. uh, including his mother's uh, worsening dementia. And then uh, he is asked to be a judge for a literary award. And inevitably, his own pseudonymously published book is nominated for the award. What is he going to do? Um, and that is probably about the first three quarters of the film, actually, I suppose, uh, yeah, on, uh, on a post-it note uh, of American fiction. Yeah. Did you enjoy this film? I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, yes. I thought it was really good, very clever. I thought it was a blast. I Absolutely, I enjoyed it enormously. It's, it's, it's very witty. Um, I guffawed out loud several times and I think you know most of the characters are they are well drawn these are you know complex contradictory yeah. rich well written characters it doesn't surprise me to find out that Cord Jefferson who directed it and wrote it yeah, wrote, wrote it or oh, listen to me yes uh, oh, you're, you're coming on board yeah <laughs> with my pathology <laughs> he, um, yeah, you can kind of you can understand that he has a TV comedy background because there is some of that sort of sparky yeah. pacey TV comedy dialogue uh, on the script here which I think um, uh, uh, really kind of uh, serves it well I'd, I'd um, and I know after we were talking last week about you know what have we learned, and one of the big lessons I've learned from you doing this podcast is to think about the opening image. The opening yeah. image of this film is, I think, vital to understanding the fundamentals of the whole picture. It's the the film opens up with a close up of Jeffrey Wright um, uh, as Monk. He's teaching a literature literature seminar. He's surveying his students with like the cynical eye, and you can see in that opening moment, that first moment, you can see. You know, most of the things you need to know about him, you can see instantly that, you know, he's confident that he is cleverer than anybody else in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see at the same time, he is kind of like a man apart, isn't he? You know, in that first, he reminds me of John Donne's, you know, island that yeah. no man should be. Um, you know, and that establishes his character for the rest of the film. I think it's um, a great opening scene, skillfully written film. Yeah. And he has to get off that island immediately, right? So um, mm. that's all you see of his teaching career. And then uh, he goes back to Boston where he grew up. That's where the family issues are. And one, I don't know if this is a fault, but one thing that I, that I found really obvious about the film was, um, you know, he, he's, he's, 
down on his luck with money. He needs to write a book. All these these uh, classic sort of uh, heavy heavy things weighing on his conscience come up really quickly. Um, his mother has a dementia. She needs to be put into medical care, so he needs more money. Um, there's this moment at the end of the first act. His sister. Have we rung a spoiler bell? Uh-oh. Oh no! Should we? Should we? Let's let's ring the spoiler yeah, bell because you're right. We are going to spoil some pretty big moments. Get so. that out of the way because I was about to. Oh, we God. we will ring that now. Here's, here's the bell. Oh yeah! I was about to blow it. Yeah, his sister <laughs> dies quickly, just abruptly, just as he's repairing that relationship. And I think part of the mm. point of that scene is to so, to suggest that he can start to repair uh, the family situation. But all of the struggles are sort of piled up very quickly, which. I get it's you know, it's a classic sort of screenwriter thing to do, but that was the one moment that I kind of just disliked in the film was that it just seemed like there was too much, but it's not a subtle <laughs> film, so it's fine. I mean, in in, in hindsight, um, this film is really about like it's, it's interesting that you talked about well drawn characters because the film is so based on stereotypes too. The the, the people that we engage with in the film are very well drawn, but all the characters in the um, in the sort of the literary circle, in the two books, they're not well drawn. They're stereotypical characters. The writers who are on the committee with Monk to uh, to judge the book of the year, whatever it is, um, they are also very, very sort of caricature like. Um, yeah. So there's not a lot of subtlety necessarily, but that's I think that's the whole point. And it's sort of this film's really about stereotypes and assumptions of other people. Um, but you do get this, yeah, you get this very clear image of Monk at the beginning, and that means he's got to get out of his personal space in order for the whole story arc to happen. And it, it does arc, yeah, very well. I mean, there's kind of two films squished together here in this in this film, I suppose, because there is the literary satire, which yeah. is largely what I think you see in the trailer and this this cute idea of a you know very highly educated, extremely esoteric writer kind of deliberately dumbing down and, and feeling superior to yeah. everybody, but then actually sort of finding success and not being sure what to do about it. You know, and that all is, you know, broadly satirical and stereotypical. But on the other hand, the other side of the coin, the other major arm of the story is this kind of family drama. Yeah. And I think all the characters in there are kind of nicely drawn. I think, you know, the sister and the brother, they are, you know, quite complex, well-drawn characters. The mother... Uh, their long-term live-in maid, Lorraine. These are all kind of you know, nice, believable characters who are not kind of quite so crazy and overstated, and they have the depth and dimension. Um, you know, it it does feel like those two halves of the film. Mm, yeah, they're they're kind of coming from slightly different worlds or trying to say slightly different things. Mm-hmm. I think the film it, it's a great adaptation. It's a good example oh. of an adaptation because you know I've read the book and I'll have some things to say about the book. Um, it does it takes the shape of the book, but it takes very few actual scenes oh, from good. the book. Yeah. So most of the gags, most of the dialogue, you know, most of the episodes, the scenes themselves are actually largely new. So the Jefferson, he's taken the story off the book, but he's told it very much in his own way, in a much more cinematic way. Yeah. So and, and in in doing that, he has thrown a lot away. It's not a long book; it's probably I don't know, two hundred and fifty pages, something yeah. like that. Um, but that's still, you know, that's still there is a lot of story to squeeze into a two-hour film. So he has thrown a lot away, and it's probably worth talking a little bit about um, what has been removed because I think once you know the shape of the book that the film evolved from, yeah. 
I think you get a slightly different perspective on what the film is trying to do or maybe what it doesn't quite succeed in doing. Um, so are you prepared to listen, listen to me yak on about the book? I am. I'm happy <laughs> to because it used to be that you coughed your way through these podcasts and I think you're cured. So yak yeah. on. At last, like three or four months later, you're right. I haven't yeah. coughed once now. That's tempting fate. I'm going to cough <laughs> any minute now. So, so the book Eurasia, published in 2001, um, is great. It's a great fun read. It's very entertaining. Bit of a page turner, but it's a real portmanteau book. I think I think that is the right word. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you with your English professor hat yeah. on whether that is what I mean. It contains it contains the story of Monk and his struggles with literary circles and his mother's dementia yeah. but also it contains like the whole text of the spoof novel so yeah. like there are 80 pages in the middle where you get the whole of this book this book uh-huh. my pathology which he has written yeah um, and then also it contains there's like four or five pages which are just a very very opaque academic essay written by monk you get the whole of that oh, really? and then um, halfway through you get this kind of allegorical short story um, about a man who appears on the game show um, and then another bit further away, you get a whole set of letters uh, from uh, Monk's father's lover to his father. Ooh. He just finds these letters and then the letters appear verbatim within the book. Um, there are a whole bunch of little sketches that huh. uh, appear in the middle of the book. Little conversations between famous historical figures. Yeah. There's a little sketch between Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. Or, and there's another little sketch between James Joyce and Oscar Wilde. All these really? little asides, they're all crammed into this one book. So it's constantly entertaining. It's a little bit exhausting maybe to read, but there's lots and lots of stuff that is um, sort of stuffed into there. Yeah. A, a portmanteau is like, yes, it's a suitcase, basically, or a coat hanger kind of thing. Is the, uh, okay, from the, right. From the French. So it would make sense that you'd have a lot of different little items in, in one... Um, one container, but I, I don't get that sense nearly as much from the film. So that's interesting about the book. Uh, yeah, so all that is is cut out. There yeah. are like a lot of big changes in the film uh, compared to the book. So in the book, for example, Lisa, who is his sister, who's a doctor, who who works at like a family planning clinic, yep. and she performs terminations, and she is shot by a pro life protester. Oh, so there's this yes, this kind of very big political dimension which is not touched upon in the film at all. So she, you know, she just has an unfortunate heart attack at the dinner table in the film. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the book, it's considerably more dramatic. Oh. Um, the, the book has all the subplot about Monk's mother succumbing to dementia yeah but it is reflected by monk's own kind of he has this breakdown of his own so he has to constantly pretend to be stag r lee the invented author of the book and as the book wears on he slowly starts to hallucinate and he sees people who aren't there and he gets confused about who is real and who is not and who his real identity is and probably most significantly um, in the book you get the whole text of my pathology there's like an 80 page novel inside the novel Mm. um and it's you know it's all written in this kind of extremely stereotyped vernacular with you know misspellings of virtually every word um and uh the book itself it not it's it's a little bit of a difficult read in a way but it's also you know quite an entertaining read but many of the things that happen in the book within the book reflect things that happen to Monk the character. Oh. So, for example, Van Gogh, who is this kind of young urban black man who is the the, the protagonist of my pathology, um, he has uh, four children by four different mothers. 
And uh, later in the book, Monk discovers that, well, he is one of three children, but his father had a fourth child oh. with another woman. And he goes to try and find this other sister that he has. So it turns out that his father has kind of done the same thing mm. as Van Gogh has done in the book. In the book, within a book, Van Gogh is invited to be on television to appear on a kind of Jerry Springer type show where mm -hmm. they tell him, you know, you're a bad father and you've had four children by four different mothers. Um, and then Monk in the book um, has to pretend to be Stag R. Lee and he has to appear on a Jerry Springer type TV show and he has to appear behind a screen and pretend to be another character and be asked about his book. So um, the book within a book uh, really reflects the wider story and yeah. all that is kind of lost i'm very slightly surprised to see the the film more or less bypass the idea of portraying the book within a book that my pathology appears as a little skit and you get a little bit of it but yeah. not a great deal of it and so in a way i feel like having read the book watching the film is a little bit like watching um a mirror and only seeing one side of the reflection mm-hmm so I've seen the setup and not the payoff, yeah. or I've seen the payoff and not the setup. So it's interesting to see what has um, what has been left out of yeah. the film. And in a way, I think the film is very slightly poorer for it because there are so many internal reflections in the book which are kind of lost in the in yeah. the film. Be hard to put a lot of that on screen and then have it come in at uh, whatever it was under two hours anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that I think it sounds like he made some pretty good uh, decisions in in adapting the the book. Um, for me, that I did get the sense, and maybe you're supposed to get the sense that this my pathology is just a weekend's worth of writing, and he's going to get this yes. big offer for it. <laughs> Um, but it almost seemed too short. It really does feel like he sits down. You see the one scene played out by the, the two actors right in front of him as he's writing, and it's a really clever scene. Um, but that's about the only sense you get of the book. And again, again, I think in a, you know, in a shortish film, you don't want to spend too much time recreating the entire book. But I did feel a little underwhelmed because I thought, oh, boy, maybe I should go home and write a – I was about to leave the movie theater and go crank out some <laughs> – piece of crap in a couple hours because it does really seem like he's it's one night of writing you see right it's not like he's yeah. struggling in coffee shop after coffee shop so it suggests <laughs> that it's a really easy thing for him to do um i suppose that's all the point but you don't get much emphasis that he he spent a lot of time even thinking about it or outlining it he just comes he, he literally starts with that great cliche Ooh, oops maybe that should be saved for later he's <laughs> writing the title i mean he starts with the title and then he just starts writing the book which I've never written like that, but um, <laughs> <it's good. laughs> uh, so yeah, he just goes right into the first scene and starts writing, and it's, it does seem like he's just cranked it out in no time. So it's interesting that it's you said it was about seventy-five or eighty pages of the of the erasure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a yeah, big chunk of the book. Yeah, yeah there's this other thing about him being um, a purist, right? I think that's part of the part of his character arc. He wants to write these things that, yeah, no one's going to read, but they're, you know, these just these pure tropes that he's really invested his life into. Um, and, you know, he, he wants to, he, he releases the book, which is originally called My Pathology. He um, <laughs> releases that because he he's playing a trick on the industry, right? He, he, he's not necessarily in it for the money, even though in that first act we've been presented with all these reasons that he needs money. And then, yeah. and then in terms of motivation, it's a little a little jaunting because he refuses the money, right? He's got the seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. He wants to he wants to shut down the whole thing. Okay, I played my trick. I've made my point that 
that book publishers don't know anything and they're just going to print crap anyway. Um, but then it, you know, he has this moment where he wants to walk away from the, the whole project he's gotten himself into and walk away from the money more importantly. And then in terms of motivation, it seems like he really needs the money because that's happening right when his mother really needs to go into sort of a full care yeah. nursing home. So that was another thing that struck me as being a little odd. And I don't know if that's explained more in the book. Was it always that he was, – was the need for money there or was it need, the need to make a point as this purist writer? Was it that more <laughs> – Important. Yeah, there, so there is like there is the similar emphasis for for needing money, and you know, once again in the book, you know, his brother is broke and his sister has died, and you know, nobody has any money, and and you know, care for people with dementia is very expensive. Yeah. So it does emphasise that in the film, but I think part of it is um, uh, the reason that he tries to give the book an unprintable name. Yeah. Uh, so he re- so I'm, I'm going to bring in the bleep, bleep machine. Yes! So he he, re- he, re- he renames the book. <laughs> in in the hope that all the publishers will just turn it down. But I think in the book, his main motivation for wanting to do that is that he can feel his own personality disintegrating. Oh. So he realises, oh, if I don't get out of this soon, I'm going to sort of become Stag Ali. Yeah. And he's finding it very stressful and difficult trying to pretend to be this person. And, and he's sort of becoming a little bit confused about what is real and what is not. And so, you know, this is, this is his kind of urgent attempt to try and back out of the whole deal. Um... By you know by making the book unpublishable, and so you know he is so surprised when he raises the stakes, and then they just meet it immediately, and they say, "Oh yeah, another great yeah, we'll, we'll we'll publish it with that title. That's fine." So it's like it gives him no way out. Um, yeah, that urgency is more clearly demonstrated in the book. Whereas I agree, I did come away from this film very slightly feeling that yeah, I thought the film could have made life a little bit harder for Monk. Mm-hmm. That many things do seem to come to him quite easily he, he appears yeah. to write this hit book in a, a weekend yeah you know he he picks up some tomatoes from his attractive neighbor and immediately they're you know they're in bed together yeah. five minutes later on um you know he sends the book to his agent as a joke and immediately it's bought for three quarters of a million dollars everything you know sometimes seems to come to him just a little bit too early and i felt like i could have watched him struggle a bit harder yeah. You know, in the same way that it's it you know nobody threatens that they will throw his mother out of the care home mm-hmm. or you know no one tells him well you haven't paid the bills so she's got to go and live with you yeah. um so it, you know life could have been a little bit uh, tougher that's one of the fundamental rules of screenwriting isn't it make your life as hard or make yeah. the, your characters lives as hard as possible because yeah. you will just squeeze more drama out of that yes and that goes back to my original critique is that in that first act it all happens and it's all sort of these sort of tropey kinds of uh, uh, of struggles the death of the mother the death of the sister the you you're gonna you can't teach anymore because you just offended some students you can't publish books so you you might not even be able to teach ever, forever you'll you have to take the sabbatical your mother's ill you, she's got to go into the a facility so it's, it all happens very early and it's kind of obvious and over the top and that's and then you're right I think from there on out he actually succeeds even though he's sort of trying to fail and it's a it's it's just a little too simple in that way, yeah. Like yeah. all the struggle yeah. seems to come very early on, and then you know he starts inheriting inheriting some of the the family struggles, and yeah, things are a little bit difficult, but it's not like he struggles with the things he's supposed to struggle with. And maybe I'm just an envious writer because he. <laughs> but it does be, yeah. it begs the question: like, if he's that talented a writer, why does he have to write? Um, uh, sort of what's basically a black black exploitation uh, yeah. book, and he's 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 inspired by someone else's success, and again, that's playing into that he needs the money, so he needs to write a book that's going to sell, 
And I think the author's name is Sintara. I think it does, it spell autocorrects to Sinatra. <laughs> but I think yes. he was called, I'm not, now I'm confused. It's been a couple of weeks since I saw it. So I don't know if it was Sinatra or Sintara. <laughs> I, I think it is Sintara. Okay. I think Sintara appears on the front cover of a magazine and her name has been autocorrected to Sinatra on that, though. Oh, I really? think, yeah. I think okay. that might be a subtle gag. Or maybe it passes <laughs> the screen so quickly I just misread it. Yeah, it's yeah. also possible. But, um, yeah. my, I, I, I agree with you that I think the film would be even stronger if Monk had a harder time. Mm. And I also feel, I don't know, uh, if I were the producer on this project, ha ha, yeah, imagine that, um, I would have suggested, you know what, maybe I would have put more of or my pathology into the film and turn that into a mini film within a film. Oh, yeah. And then, I, I you know, to make room, I might have cut the brother. Uh, because mm. Cliff, the gay brother, I yeah. think he is a hilarious character. Yeah. Every time he's on screen, yeah. um, you know, he's very funny. He has some of the best gags in the film. But I don't think anything he does really furthers the story. I, th- I think he's a good source of gags, but I don't think he's a proper source of real story with a capital S. And yeah. I think the film could survive perfectly well without him. Yeah. Um, I, I would be tempted to you know, cut him uh. um, and make more space for for for. F- and um, I, can't, I can't imagine going into any meeting and no producer is ever going to say no when you tell him more. F- uh, and it will be a him, of course, when you tell him, <laughs> I think we need to make more space for f- in this film. <laughs> um, but but um, I think I think, you know, cutting the brother would have made more space for the film within the film. Yeah. And then you would have enjoyed more of that kind of mirror effect of seeing the the black. I love that word black exploitation. Yeah. yeah. Why didn't I think to write that earlier myself? Yeah. Um, uh, more of the black exploitation story reflecting the outer story which i think is where the book functions at its very cleverest uh, yeah so i have nothing to contribute because i just don't know the book you got me <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you're gonna win in the second half uh, I, I i don't know i i um, i've been finding the same thing as you which is that um i've got so sick of dropping my pen in the dark that i don't tend to oh, make yeah. notes on the films oh, yeah. these days <laughs> but this time out this was this film had so many quotable lines yeah. that i did start writing some of them down actually so many great gags yeah. uh, a lot of them are down to the brother um I, so some of the ones i wrote down was um you know monk has two siblings who are doctors um and uh, and cliff says to him you know well uh, when he kind of he mentions to his to his brother well i'm a doctor as well and cliff says yeah yeah what if we need to revive a sentence for example <laughs> which i thought was a great gag that's really good in the same way that when monk goes to the bookshop and he points out that his books shouldn't be in the african-american literature yeah. section because he says the blackest thing about this book is the ink yeah um it's, it's a cute funny oh, yeah, line definitely. and and when um when monk tells his brother you know, I'm not offended that you've taken a lover. I'm offended that you call it taking a lover. <laughs> <laughs> Just some great gags, some great right, gags. Yeah. And there's a, you know, a couple of serious lines as well, which were so good I had to write them down. When, when Monk says white people say they want the truth, but they don't, they just want to feel absolved. Yeah. Um, yeah which is you know, a nice little encapsulation of, of all of that interaction with those kind of the publishing houses. Yeah, and even when he he approaches Sintara, mm. autocorrect, mind your own business, um, <laughs> towards the end of the film, and he he points out he picks up his own book and he says this book flattens us, uh, which again is a is I think a a very elegant, beautiful yeah. way of explaining you know the way that um, white publishers in the film have approached uh, literature by black authors. Yeah. You know, it's a beautiful 
four word sentence to summarize that entire experience yeah. this book flattens us beautiful and the scene where Centara's doing her reading at the conference and she's sitting down for a live interview that's it's hilarious <laughs> i mean it's because it is all these and you notice that oh i think there's this one scene where monk is in the back of the room i think he might be the only person of color in the room and when she finishes her reading you you sort of see the crowd in front of him but then um, they stand up, and he's sort of erased by this white woman who's standing up, mm. loud, smiling and clapping just fervently for this this black exploitation piece. It's hilarious, and it's just a wonderful little touch. Um, I wonder if if a lot of those lines that you recited were in the book as well. Did they come from there, or? You know, I don't think so. I didn't recognize them. I think that is a comedy writer applying yeah. their craft. Yep. Um, you know, there are funny things in the book, and it's you know, it's an amusing book. I don't, didn't recognize any of those gags though, and I think you know they they have been skillfully written, yeah. pithy little jokes. Very good. Uh, but uh, so, so I enjoyed this film. Thought it was good, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. this this film is kind of about cliches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I feel bad calling the cliche squad, yep. but I'm still going to call the cliche right. squad. Cliche squad. So, so, so like the film is, it's you know about literary cliches. It's it's about movie cliches. Yeah, and I think they have sort of been careful to avoid adding cliches, like un- unknowingly adding cliches of their own, but. Um, I did detect a few stock characters in this film, yeah. and I, th- I think stock characters count as cliches. The two that really stood out to me, there is a wimpy bookstore employee, mm-hmm. like me, with a pencil neck and glasses, kind of saying, oh, I'm not allowed to change where the books go. And I thought, and this, this guy feels really, really like a stock character. And it's only a short scene, and he's, you know, he's a little bit funny, but... Um, yeah, it felt like a little bit of a cliche. Yeah. And then a, a bigger character who's the idiotic Hollywood movie producer. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Is it feels like another kind of stock character. That guy's, you know, kind of an a-hole. And, uh, and I feel like we've seen that fairly simple character many, many times before in movies. Yeah. And, you know, in a film which is sort of about cliches, maybe you need to police yourself a little bit harder and avoid them. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think the whole thing sort of operates on cliches. So I, I felt the same way that you can't, it's almost that they're exposing the cliche as opposed to using the cliche to further the story. So it's hard to call the squad on this one, but we, yeah. we've got them on the line. We might as well occupy them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's um, all the, all the characters in the writing are very stereotypical, right? I mean, in Sintara's yeah. book and in his book and, um, but again, the, the film's sort of operating on that level, but I, I think it's balanced pretty well by the fact that the, the other characters feel very real. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of caricaturing and, you know, the sort of the giddy publishers, oh, we've got controversial, but really popular material. And they're, they're just falling all over themselves to sign him up to this massive contract. And so it, it seems like they're, yeah, all, a lot of these characters are just very cliche, but I, again, it works on that level. So I, I can't fault it there, but for me, the biggest one is just this thing we've talked about before: is that writers that just don't write, and it's mm, because it's not cinematic. Yeah. You, you can't watch it. You can't just show someone sitting alone in their quiet room writing on end. But it just seems that uh, it was so easy for him to just put up that title page. And I've never done that. Where you just put up the you start from 
ground zero. <laughs> my pathology. <laughs> he starts out with my pathology, right? And then he changes it to my pathology. And I think in this, again, it's hard to fault this film for these sorts of things because it's really, it's done in a different way. It's a very clever that he immediately, immediately changes the title in front of your eyes and he's going to change it again. Um, and he also changes his pseudonym right there. He's, I think he starts writing Monk maybe at the beginning and he becomes Stag R. Lee. Um, <laughs> so again, it's, it's, they're, they're nice plays with cliches. So for that, I'm just going to more or less give him a, a free ride because I think it is a really good, ironically, a very good writer's film. It's not necessarily yeah. like a big director's film, um, but it's a real writer's film. And I, I think we can talk about that a little bit more as well. So um, I don't have much to fault them on because I just en- I enjoyed it very much and I understood why the cliches were there. So it made sense. It was it was clever use of cliches throughout. But I think you've got the point on the, the bookstore employee. Um, I think just people in Hollywood hate to read. They're not readers, you know? So... <laughs> They don't go to bookstores. So I just feel like, okay, we'll make it the, we'll use that stereotypical stock character for the bookstore employee. Well, always nice to watch a writer's film. Let's have a break. Um, and then uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about, I guess, another writer's film. I think fairly explicitly, we're going to talk about 1961's A Raisin in the Sun. As Two Wheel Cinema Club listeners, you know that we're not afraid to address delicate issues on the pod. And our newest sponsor not only addresses the delicate issues, but they also find solutions for them. <laughs> Let's give a warm welcome to the Two Wheel Cinema Club family to Flatulax. <laughs> Let's wake up and smell the roses. Flatulence is a natural human condition that affects all of us, despite what some people claim. Our sensible friends at Flatulex are in the shame reduction business. Ingest just one Flatulex gas pass pod before you <laughs> consume your most gas-producing foods, and then add to your intestinal contents till your heart's content. While you digest, first to the party, Flatulex will be hard at work producing a symphony of smells and making art of the fart, sure to warm <laughs> your heart. Choose from a wide range of sweller smellers. Rose, chamomile, clover, lavender, citrus, ragwort, gutwort, of course. Arsamesia, <laughs> I don't know if that's a typo or just a very clever name. Um, morning dew, incense, flowers in the rain, um, silent but deadly nightshade, and many, many more. All of them sense sure to put a smile on the Sphinx. The good folks at Flatulax have a flatu sensational product to eliminate the stinks. My friends at the Baxter School of the Deaf always say that God made farts smell so that even the deaf and hard of hearing can enjoy them. <laughs> well, now everyone's going to enjoy them a whole lot more. Let loose and feel the freedom. Make flatu sensory experiences. Farts are always funny until they're not. But now you can relax with Flatulax. <laughs> especially if you are going to a crowded screening, this should be mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> 
And we are back, uh, wafted back on a, a warm and pleasing uh, aroma uh, to talk about A Raisin in the Sun, 1961 film based on the 1959 play uh, written by Lorraine Hansberry. Um, not a film or a play that I'm in any way uh, familiar with. Uh-huh. Uh, fairly early performance by Sidney Poitier. Um, great film. Yeah. Uh, thanks for choosing it. But tell me... Why did you choose this film? Do you have any other questions for me, Counselor? Ooh. Well, usually I'm I'm choosing films based on the trailer of the new film for the most part. You know, I need to see what that film, yeah. what I think that film is about, and then uh, compare it to something that I think resonates somehow. Um, I like it when we go back pretty far. These two films are sixty-three years apart. Is that right? Wow. Like I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that's 60, 62, 63 years apart. Um, and I think I really wanted two really different uh, generational perspectives of of black Americans fitting themselves into white America. And I think the, the two films do it pretty well. They're, they're, they it, themselves are also just two very different projects, uh, one being so theatrical and one being a writer's piece, but someone who's coming from a television perspective for the most part and... I think uh, I think they played pretty well together. Did you feel like there was a connection? I, th- I think this, this is an incredible double bill. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say there is a connection so much as they are finely interwoven. Yeah. Uh, there are so many points of contact between yeah. these two films. I think what a brilliant pairing. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Oh, um, right. Uh, do you want to tell us, uh, for ignorant people like me who've <laughs> never seen this film before, uh, what is the story? I would be happy to. Um, the story is originally written by, as you mentioned, Lorraine Hansberry from her play. It is very similar to the play, I will say. Oh, okay. Up front. I don't think there are... So there contrasts already with uh, American fiction because um, Lorraine Hansberry also wrote the screenplay, which I don't think she really did much of i don't she was really a playwright she died very young um Mm. so she doesn't have a huge body of work but she has this gem in it um she's added a few scenes it's very theatrical so she's added a few scenes that are outside the apartment and they 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 kind of feel pasted in um so again instead of deleting material she's really kind of adding a couple things just to make it more um cinematic or more of a film but it's definitely a filmed play and it's very true to the original source material um, yeah. Daniel Petrie was the director who had sort of a long mixed career of um, a lot of television dramas, almost things that look like tele- teleplays, um, did Resurrection in the 1980s and Fort Apache the Bronx, which was a Paul Newman film ah. back then. So I was I was interested to go see his history because this comes kind of in the middle of his career. I think he died in the very early 2000s maybe, but he... Um, this is 1961. He had quite a television career before that, into the 50s anyway. The, um, the only the only projects of his that I was familiar with is yeah. the Betsy, which is like a, oh. a 80s or 90s, um, kind of like a, you know, a feature film, but also maybe like a television miniseries. I think it was appeared as a miniseries on UK TV yeah. about like the very early motor car industry, I think. And it, it was most notable because I remember my parents watching it and Laurence Olivier being in it and my parents oh. being tremendously shocked that there was a scene where Laurence Olivier is bonking some woman on a bed. 
Um, and it's, it's absolutely shocking that Laurence Olivier would do this. Why? Well, that's just dreadful. It's filth. Awful. Um, and then uh, the only other project that I recognised in his oeuvre is Cocoon, colon, The Return. The Return, yeah, I noticed that. The Return, <laughs> the sequel to Cocoon, which I have not seen. Yeah. So you kind of think, oh dear, well, I, I, having looked him up on IMDb, yeah. I didn't hold out a great deal of hope for this film and how wrong I was. Yeah, yeah, because it's, um, again, it's very much like the play and it's he's working with confined spaces for sure and that's kind of the point of the whole thing is they're very confined space. Um, and the, the, the phrase I said is I used was well-photographed. It's so very mm. competently directed because he's working with actors who actually most of them were in the play on stage as well. So oh. they know this material very, very well. And most of them are in the uh, the, the version of the play that I read, which includes the uh, the opening night cast in, uh, I think it was in New York. Um, so it's competent acting. It's com- obviously competent directing, but it's just it's a beautifully photographed um, uh, film. Um, so that's an achievement in itself. And I think uh, anyone who sees it will see how well done it is. It, um does include Sidney Poitier, um, Ruby D as his wife Ruth. Sidney Poitier plays Walter Younger Jr. And Ruby D is his wife Ruth. Uh, also features Diana Sands as the sister to um, Walter. Uh, her name is Benita Younger. And mm. Claudia McNeil plays uh, Lena uh, Younger, the sort of the matriarch of the family. Um, I guess I, I would argue that it's it's kind of a multi-protagonist piece. It's really all about family yeah. in ways that also American fiction is about families. Um, you would think Sidney Poitier would be the, the protagonist and he obviously a major player, but they're in such a small place. It's almost that the, the, the apartment itself is a protagonist or that the family within it is the protagonist. So um, similar to American fiction, we open on Walter's face a little bit. He's sleeping in this... Um, um, crowded Chicago apartment. The whole family's sort of waking up and they're all exhausted. So you get this wonderful characterization of how how just uh, weary they are of their lives. Um, and they all have to mm-hmm. race towards this um, shared bathroom, as far as I can tell. It looks like they share a bathroom with another flat on the uh, in the building. Um, and, yeah, there's just tremendous acting in this film. Um, they're all stage actors, um, a lot of long takes that are uninterrupted where the camera's just rolling and they are moving towards the camera. I love that feature about it. Um, mm. So it's it's great acting. I think this film would, because it's so theatrical, it would not make a great film without the fantastic acting. But um, Lean is the family matriarch. Her husband has died. It's hard to say how long ago. Um, but apparently, you know, earlier there would have been there would have been one more adult in this crammed uh, apartment in Chicago. Yeah. It's got a ten thousand dollar life insurance policy that she's about to receive in the mail. Um, everyone sort of calls her Mama, um, and uh, uh, Walter has this scheme with the money. He wants to invest this money into a liquor store as a partnership with some of his drinking buddies. Um, it doesn't, I don't know if it makes sense for a lot of heavy drinkers to get into the liquor store business, but eh, you're an anesthetist, you a similar sort of thing. Yeah, well, well I, the number one medical profession for, for drug for misuse exactly. is anesthetists. So, <laughs> yes, yep, yep. Add two and two together and um, you get four. He gets a lot of resistance to his idea from his wife, uh, Ruth, from his mother, his sister, everyone that does not like it as an idea. And it's this $10,000, this is going to change their lives. Um, so they're all very interested in using, seeing how Lena's going to use it. Um, Sidney Poitier is an absolute live wire in this film. He's just sliding and slithering around these spaces <laughs> and 
Um, it's an amazing physical performance. Um, mm. Just a, it's incredible. But um, but as I said, he's not necessarily the protagonist because it's really this group um, piece where they're all interested in how the money is going to be spent. They all know it's going to change their lives in one way, but they're not really sure how it's going to change their lives. Um, we see a few scenes exterior of Walter working as a chauffeur. He's preparing a car. Um, he's opening doors. He's waiting for this rich guy that he drives around all the time. And that's there are very few scenes where you see certainly a, a character alone, but also a character outside of the apartment alone. Um, and this mm. does not obviously happen on the stage uh, production. So that's something that she added in. Um, but you see how much he hates his job, how much he wants to go into business for himself and really take part in the American dream or how he thinks he can get into it. Um, we get some exposition on how Walter Sr., so um, Walter's father, uh, yeah. was never the same after Lena lost a baby. So they would have had another sibling between Benita and Walter. Um, and he apparently, you know, he was just very depressed after that, and he was just never a happy guy. It sounds like he worked himself to death at a pretty young age. Um Everyone's been stuck in this apartment um, where the family's been for more than 40 years and mm. sort of working very hard so that a third generation of the younger family in the form of uh, Walter and Ruth's son, Travis, will not have to live there too. So they're trying to rise through the ranks in the social order yeah. and the economical order to have a better life. Um, beneath of the younger sisters, this modern woman, she questions the existence of God or the performance or the work evaluation of God, uh, much against uh, Lena's wishes. And there's this one poignant scene where she has to get down on her knees and, and say to her mother, in my mother's house, there is still God. Mm. Um, because she's very modern, she's liberated, she's studying to be a doctor, um, and she could use some of this money for um, her medical school. Um, I love that line about there is still God because it, the wording... Is, makes it sound like God is this unmoving thing and these are tenants <laughs> who are not going to move from the kingdom that he has assigned them to. Um, if you say God lives still, that's, I think that sounds a little different, like he's still around, but this is like he's just unmoving. And I think that is a, an important thing, um, this idea that God is a liberating force, um, but it's actually a force of inertia here um, with uh, you know these black Americans struggling in probably 1950s, 1960s Chicago. Um, yeah. yeah. And then there's this metaphor of a poor but resilient houseplant that lives despite a very dark environment, um, which uh, comes up again and again. And Lena's dreams of living someplace where she could have a yard and a garden and grow some flowers. Um, so that the, this sort of uh, this ability to create beauty in their lives doesn't exist. It's a nice metaphor. And then it's, it's, it feels like a very stagey metaphor, but it works well in the film, too, I think. Um Lena's sort of going to kill Walter's dream because she's still the head of the house. She holds the purse strings, um, and she would not support a liquor store. And then by the <laughs> end of the first act, Ruth, Walter's wife, passes out because she is pregnant, and that is going to further complicate their economic situation and living arrangements. I'll leave it there. I mean, that, that does really feel like a curtain down moment yeah. doesn't it yeah, yeah definitely. It, it yeah. feels so much like a play yeah yeah um i mean it, it feels like it's a great play uh, but it does feel a lot like 
I, I mean, I think all the scenes that have been added to try and take the story out of the apartment, none yeah. of them really contribute very much. No, and I think the film would be fine without any of them. Yeah. Uh, to the extent even that I was wondering, well, why not just film this you know, as a play in front of an audience? Yeah. There are a whole bunch of funny gags in this film, and I suspect they play pretty funny in front of an audience. Yeah. There are moments when you kind of think, well, there should probably be a pause for a laugh there because... Yeah. You know, this is a you know like a, a humorous moment. You know, if you're performing it live, you you get a big reaction. Yeah. Um, and because it's not allowed to get the reaction because it's on screen, you know, somehow the, the jokes aren't quite given enough yeah. space to breathe. Yeah. So yeah, it feels very much like a like a play. And, and, it, and it is. And it's a you know it's a little bit melodramatic even. Yeah. You know, and a bit a bit stagey, but overall, personally, I thought it was dynamite. Yeah. Just great. It it it, it is, and you know, you can say you can just. Um, I credit that to just a, it is a great play to begin with, but you can't downplay the the acting is just fantastic mm. on all fronts, um, and the direction too. You've got to give credit to everyone involved. Like the directing is just letting actors who know these characters, who have really become these characters, do their thing, and it it feels like more than just like setting up three cameras and shooting a play. It's um, much more that 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 camera is. It's used both pa- passively and actively. I think the passive use is fantastic because you know, characters will get closer and closer to the camera. You get a lot of these old school scenes where there's the two people are facing the camera, but one's behind the other. You don't see people <laughs> doing a whole lot of that anymore, or even three characters. And they, they sort of change the frame by their movement. So it's actually expertly done as from a directorial perspective as well. So I think everyone gets credit for it. I think it's a great play. It's yeah. well acted. It's beautifully lit. I mean, it, it, it feels like it was photographed. Like you could almost break that down into every, yeah, like a, a, a series of thousands of beautiful black and white um, portraits. Um, so I think everyone everyone gets credit on it. It just comes together so beautifully. It's that kind of opening image. You know, once again, this is that thing I've learned from you. I think yeah. the, um, that opening image of Sidney Poitier asleep in bed yeah. as his alarm goes off. And again, it's beautifully photographed. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. fantastic. There's a number of great close-ups in this film. Yeah, you know, the alarm goes off and he opens his eyes, and just that made me wonder. Well, is this the, is this the film that generated the term woke? Because oh, yeah. somehow this this, <laughs> this notion of kind of you know, waking up and recognizing yeah. you know, what your life is really like you know, yeah. that's encapsulated just in that opening moment of the film. It's yeah. great, and they're all so tired. I love that part. And like <laughs> Travis does not he puts the blanket back over himself once. He's sleeping on a couch in this you know, the, basically the living room of this this fairly small apartment. You know, he eventually gets up. Ruth basically pushes him into the bathroom because he has to get there before Mr. Johnson does. And the um, bathroom is outside the the apartment, isn't the apartment. it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they um, have to go out. Yeah, outside into the hallway and, just just to go to the bathroom. Yeah, and that's you know, I think as we said a little bit earlier, just the crowding, just these people. You really sense their problems because they're just on top of each other, mm. wrestling with a neighbor for the bathroom, and Ruth's exhausted. She's waking up early to make eggs for everybody, and. Everyone's tired, and I think that's a, you know it happens within the first thirty seconds. Probably you see all that. Do you think should, we always have this debate? And I think we always come up with the same answer, which yeah. is: is it right to bring a spoiler bell for a film which is uh, sixty-two years old, yeah. sixty-three years old? <laughs> but um, but I think we should. So yeah. let's 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 ring the spoiler bell because I've got some spoilery things to okay, say. Okay, good. So. Um, 
one of the, so I, I watched this film at home, which means that I was at liberty to write notes. And one of the yeah. notes I wrote at the bottom of my little column of scribbles here um, is that uh, this this film is like a twenty sided die. Mm. Is what I wrote, yeah. um, which is such a nerdy thing to write. But but like it's <laughs> like most most films have only got enough energy to to sort of and focus to discuss like half a dozen ideas if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, and this, this film feels like it talks about 20 ideas. Yeah. It's about kind of like so much, so yeah. many ideas explored in this film. I started making a little list. There's like urban poverty, mm-hmm. the desire for dignity and self-determination. It talks about education and sexism. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that you know, yeah. the sister wants to become a doctor, but you know, you should become a nurse because that's what women do. Yeah. Um, you know, th- this this notion that segregation was still something that was in living memory. Yeah. You know, the Civil War was an event from recent history to the yeah. characters in this film. Yeah. They have all these notions of kind of Western ideas of Africa because Benita has this this kind of like this um, Nigerian boyfriend who comes into the, the apartment a couple of times. And I, I was trying to look this up. There's this notion of orientalism which is about kind of western notions of the mysterious east this mm-hmm. is kind of sort of racist idea of of uh of far eastern nations and i was trying to figure out if there is a word which describes you know stereotyped western nation ideas about africa because it explores mm. those as well doesn't it yeah um so orientalism but uh directed at africa it's like it reminded me of trump's comment about shithole countries there's, yeah. there's the bleak machine again um, you know, it kind of it talks about assimilation and separatism, you know, heritage and what that means. It discusses atheism. All these ideas—they're yeah. all crammed into this two-hour film. It's just incredible. It yeah. gets so much mileage out of these characters in this one small apartment. Yeah, yeah and that's what makes it a great play. It's, you yeah. know, there's there's no let up. There's no, no never a dull moment. Uh, always moving on to the next idea. It's just packed. Yeah. And there, even abortion is, sneaks in there a little yes. bit. Yes, uh, just a couple of moments, but it's uh, it's uh, quite profound in the way it arrives because um, we talked about Ruth being pregnant, and she's actually put down five dollars on a I don't know a midwife for someone to. And this is before abortion was legal in the United States. Ah. Um, so she puts down like a down payment on on uh, services, and she's open about it. I mean, the family's talking about it very openly, and. Um, the other thing I would say is um, it addresses masculinity a lot, too, because uh, ah, yeah, you, there are a number of male characters, but they're really just in the shadows. Um, it's really just Travis, the son, and then Walter uh, Jr., the father, and he's surrounded by women in, this, in, the, in the film. And, uh, you know, is he going to rise up and, you know, insist that he's ready to um, have another child with Ruth? Um, his mother's questioning about that. Is he going to uh, stand up to the... The white neighborhood where um, Ruth ends up purchasing a house so that they can all sort of achieve this dream of living in, in something more spacious within, you know, just a better life. Um, and, you know, that those scenes with, is, I think it's the Lindner character, who's the uh, the representative from the Village Improvement Association of yeah. Clyburn Park. They bought this place in Clyburn Park. Sight unseen, I got a real estate broker in my life now. So it's it's interesting that she just put the down payment on, but then... And I think maybe in the in the play it comes off as that she has seen the place uh, on a day trip or something like that. In the movie, it's they go to visit it first, and that's an added, yeah. an added scene. And they, they basically recreate a scene that's in the play, but they put it in the backyard of this house that they've purchased. But she has never uh, seen it before. 
Um, but it just it sort of underlines how how desperate they are to get out that they would just buy a house in a in a white neighborhood that doesn't want them. And then uh, one representative couches his language beautifully to say, "You're not welcome. We want to buy the house back from you at your profit." And it's up to sort of Walter to wrestle with this idea and then stand up to them and say, finally, in this very late, poignant scene where he says, look, we're going to be good neighbors. We don't want to hurt anyone out there, um, but we are going to move into this neighborhood. And he, yeah. because he's lost all the money in his liquor store scheme, I think it's very important that he gets, he gets um, swindled himself um, in his innocence and he loses most of the money that was in the inheritance. But um, instead of getting it back by selling the the property back to the neighborhood association he says look we're going to move in and i got to say the cynic in me had a different ending in mind too <laughs> oh really i thought that they could get into a little racket here where they buy a, na- a house in a white neighborhood <laughs> And then get kicked out, and they get offered more money for the house. You could do that three or four times, and all of a sudden, he would have even made the liquor store loss back. So, I like that idea. It was a it's not appropriate for either the film or the play, probably, but I think it was it would be a great scam because there is this there is this thing about um, what is it taking and getting took also in this mm. um, that you know it feels like certainly uh, white America is taking advantage of of, of the black population, but. Um, even within you know the black community, he gets taken by his friend who's he's giving this money to as an investment, and then that uh, I think it's uh, is it Willie? Willie just disappears with the money, and that's how he loses the family inheritance. So see, you you um, shouldn't be an English professor. You should be teaching a business school with advice like that. That is great <laughs> advice. Yeah, absolutely. It's purely it's totally ethical, right? That's just fine. <laughs> Um, this is another film where I I wrote down a bunch of amusing gags oh, and good. great little lines. Um, uh, and you know, one of them that uh, really made me chuckle was when after this uh, this it, Lintner, this guy who's like the representative of the the white suburb community association, has yeah. left. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, one of the characters are they're asking each other, you know, what do they think we're going to do? Eat them. And yeah. I think it's Ruth says, no, marry them is what they're yeah, afraid of. And yeah. I thought, yeah, yeah, that's a great gag, but also that's a great line as yeah. well. Um, I, I loved uh, Walter's little summary of, of New York. He said, what, what's New York? It's a bunch of hustling people all squeezed up being Eastern. Yeah. <laughs> okay, which is kind of the, oh, it's, you know, that's, that's kind of cute. It's, um, yeah, full of great lines, very skillfully written. There is no fat, is there, on this script. No. Um, you know, every, every line is uh, earns its place. Every yeah. line is a gem. It's the, absolutely full of great work. When you're reading the play, though, and I think I've read more recent plays that have much less uh, sort of uh, stage direction, but um, there's a lot written in between the dialogue lines, much more oh. than you would see in a modern play. Um, so it's very, very detailed in that way. So it is actually a little harder to read than to, to see um, as a film. What, but what is written between the dialogue? Is all oh, she crosses to the dresser? She she goes to the yeah, bed. There's a lot of that in being very specific and abbreviating what part of the stage um, as like CF and C rear and like center forward. Wow! Um, but also just like putting thoughts in the heads of characters who are you know acting the parts. I guess the actors really get extra in information, sort of exposition about the the mental state of characters very often, which you don't. I don't think you see that much in. In theater writing, in the same way that I mean, screenwriting has changed so much in sixty years too. Where 
I think uh, yep. scripts were longer in the past because there's just much more detail as opposed to, you know, I rarely write complete sentences anymore. It's like fragments. Because, <laughs> <laughs> again, film people don't want to read. So, um, I mean, it's interesting <clears throat> that, you, yeah, you would read some 60-, 70-year-old scripts and it would be full of middle shot, long shot, yeah. close-up, long yep. shot. Yeah, yeah. You know, no one writes anything like that anymore. Absolutely, no. yeah. So she has a lot of that in there. Uh, there's one... One line that sort of bothered me a little bit, but it, I think it, it shows the, the well, how, how culture has changed, but also hierarchy a little bit in this um, um, play and in this film. Um, he's talking to, um, is it, jo- I think it's George. There's, so Benita has a couple, and I love the name Benita. What is <laughs> Benita? And that one gets um, spell-checked back to Beneath, I think, is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, but Beneath has a couple of guys she's sort of dating or interested in, and George is one. He shows up wearing these white shoes. It's mm. another medical student. And Walter Jr. is pretty drunk when he's talking to him, as I recall. And um, he you know, keeps asking uh, George, what's it with you medical students? Are you guys wearing these faggoty white shoes? Uh, yeah. Um, and it was interesting to me because I think – it sort of shows you, like, on the hierarchy of the social order, homosexuals at that time were lower than a than a black uh, chauffeur oh, wow. would have been. And I don't know. It seemed like it, there's this tendency of people to try and put another group down in order to to crawl up a little bit for themselves. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone would say that in a film these days, but um, it was interesting to see that in the, in the context of 1961. This is pre-Civil yeah. Rights era in the United States. Um and obviously, it was probably yeah, a greater crime, cultural crime to be gay than it was to be um, black and working class at that time. But it was an, an int- it's, it's a moment that stands out for a couple of reasons. If I, at first, I was just thrown back and I thought, oh, this is terrible. But then I thought, okay, there is a, there's probably a reason he's doing it because this is a medical student, a future doctor. George's family has um, business investments that Walter wants to have, but he's younger than George and he's wearing the white shoes, so he can't be equal with him. Oh, did I say George? Uh... I meant Walter. There are kind of some other big themes um, in this film that are worth discussing, but I think I think I'm going to save them for the synthesis yeah, because yeah. I think there are you know big themes that these films both encompass, and it's probably worth talking about them both together. So instead, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to shuffle things along okay. and force you to play my favourite game. Oh. I'm going to force you to come and play. Who am I? Who am I? And you always go first, so you go first this time. Am I? Am I? <laughs> I can't argue with logic like that. Either, um, well, lots of great, great characters in these films. Lots of people who said so many witty things. Yeah. I was rather thinking, oh, I wish I had the, the wherewithal to come up with that kind of gag yeah. right off the cuff. That's good. A lot of good things. But out of all the characters in this film that I can most sympathise with, I think um, it's Sidney Poitier in that opening oh. shot. Yeah. Um, just that sensation of opening his eyes as the alarm goes off and then shutting them again immediately as he realised it's time to get up. I can sympathise with that so yeah. very profoundly. Yeah. I live that little moment, yeah, most days, and there it is written in close-up in black and white on my screen. Yep, yep, I know what that feels like. Oh. Who who are you this week? Very good. I There are so many characters I wanted to be, yeah. And Poitiers is one of them. I'm not really sure why I wanted to be sitting with Poitiers, but he just seems <laughs> so cool and so He's so human. cool, isn't he? He's, yeah, he, to have that cool. He's so many things at once. He's also super vulnerable and incompetent, um, but he's got dreams. He loves. He's a talker. He just loves to talk about bull crap and um i just uh yeah i, I really associated with him i put down monk though i thought that jeffrey wright's mm. character um 
as a frustrated writer, ready to do anything to get published. Um, I don't think I've worked hard enough at being bad enough, but maybe that's my next <laughs> career move. Yes. Um, yeah, this is, this so is like a writing those, seminar yeah, for us. Two, the two, uh, I guess they're, and again, there's a question whether he's the protagonist, uh, Sidney Poitier, in uh, Raisin in the Sun, but the two protagonists really struck me. They're just great characters. I like the Asagai character, too. Um, and it's funny because that actor played, um, was he a machinist? Kind of this, this inventor on Hogan's Heroes, which was an American oh. television series in the 70s, maybe even late 60s. Um, and here he's playing a, he's got this, I think, credible Nigerian accent. Um, he, so I presume he's an American actor, not <clears throat> a Nigerian one. Yeah, yeah. He's an uh, American course, actor. Right. He plays the Nigerian there and he plays, uh, yeah, like a prisoner of war during World War II in, in Hogan's mm. Heroes. Interesting actor. And I just liked his character. It was really, he's this sort of calm interlude at two moments in the in the play where he comes through and he brings in this world perspective. And he has this one line for, he says, um, he has a, a, a pet name for Beneath, and I forget what it is, but um, he has to explain it to her. And he says, um, uh, he really expresses some difficulty at trying to explain it from, uh, let's see, Yoruba yeah. or something. Then he says, um, it translates roughly to she for whom bread is not enough because <laughs> she aspires to something else, a different life. It's not just the, the staples of life, but she wants the, the art, the dance, you know, the, the, the extras that make life great. So I would say those characters for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, the writer. Yeah. I mean, Monk was great. I also just love Jeffrey Wright's voice. The man oh, has yeah. this fantastic voice. He's almost like the next, uh, James, what's it? James L. Jones. James Jones. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I think he's got work until the day he dies. But his wife, and it's also a matter of how he uses it too. He's so grumpy and uh, he's got this hard on himself uh, chip on his shoulder. Like uh, I think that other characters may even say that to him that he's his own worst enemy or he's his hardest on himself. But um, he does it a lot of it with the voice. It's just a great voice performance. And the way po- Poitiers is just this. He's like a really bad dancer in how he does this movement. I mean, he, he, he's really good at looking bad. You know, he does, he's dan- he actually dances in this film. He jumps on a table, but he's just always like, he's not walking in scenes. He's just kind of floating through them. It's, it's, he is, isn't he? Yes. I, I've seen this film three times, I think. And I just, I'm always amazed at Poitiers because, again, I don't think it's necessarily his film, but he makes it film just through presence and it's physical and it's vocal. And it's just an acting presence. And I would never say that I'm, uh, I can't say that I am those people, but for the purposes of who am I, there you go. <laughs> we can dream. A man can dream. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's, um, so I, yeah, I think these two films have tightly knitted together. So you could argue, well, the, 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 the job of bringing them together is going to be easy. Let's do our synthesis. Yeah. So I think you have very skillfully chosen these two films to pair together. Oh, good. These are both about families of people of colour. You know, they mesh together very clearly. Uh, but they also, I think they both challenge this notion of Afro-American experience or Afro-American storytelling. Yep. Both of these films, I think they invite you to say, oh, look, here are some black films about the struggles of people of colour. And then both of them look you in the eye and they say... 
Are, are you sure about that? Or are you just you know, being the idiot? Like, are you just like being the book publishers in American fiction, yeah. vibrating with excitement at this kind of this sort of cultural tourism? This, I think, I, I think maybe they say this in American fiction, misery porn. Oh it's, yeah, this yeah. is kind of misery porn to make you feel absolved. It's like the films look you in the eye and they say, "Have you not spotted that people of color are people?" Yeah. That you know, I think most of the dramatic things that happen to the characters in both of these films, and there are lots of dramatic things that happen. These things are things that happen to people mm-hmm. and 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 we get this superimposition of the of the black label this i mean this kind of in retrospect this is exactly what the scene was about in american fiction there is a scene where monk's agent is literally talking about labels he gets out to three bottles of whiskey and talks about the labels yeah. that are on them <laughs> um, and you know the film is all about the use of labels and labeling and is, is labeling the right thing to do or not it's the use of these labels that that kind of both these films are sort of screaming against in the same way that um in raisin in the sun it's that you know, the person who uses the label is the white man in the white suit you know, who enters you know through their glass door as the, the very whitest possible person imaginable. Yeah, yes. You know, and he's the guy who's using the labels, and, and you know, no one else has really been using them till he's he's turned up. So, yeah. So as as a white person, I am you know treading carefully when I offer an opinion on these films. Yeah. Huh. I was tell you what it reminded me of was that I was asked a few years ago to pitch a new version of like a nineteen seventies BBC television play. Uh, and the 1970s version, uh, it was a one-hour play for today or something like that, a Wednesday play or something like that, which was about this fictional black-dominated Britain where there were white people who were being intimidated by authority and they were victims of police violence. And, and the idea of the, you know, the, 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 the play in the 1970s was to show, what imagine if the tables were turned. Now do you see, you know, now do you have a new perspective? Um, and, you know, and, um, you know, my agent said, "You know, why don't you kind of you know approach this? Do you want to do this?" And I kind of I sort of responded, "I'm probably not the right person to write this." Yeah. Um, and not only because you know I'm a white person, and you know maybe I'm the wrong person to be telling this story, but also I think if you make that story today, there are other pitfalls, which is namely that I think some racists. Uh, would love to see a program about white people being oppressed by yeah. black people because they would say, "Oh yeah, look, you see, you see, yeah. it's even on telly." Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of pitfalls in projects like in projects like that. So so, you know, my attitude, and this is why I've written it down carefully, is I want to be sensitive and respect boundaries and experiences and try to you know imagine life as a black person. But both of these films have rolled up and said, you know, in their own way, that's idiotic. The lives of of black families are primarily the lives of families. People of colour are people. There's a reason why the word people appears first in that phrase. Mm -hmm. Um, So so for that reason, I'm Mm. a bit shy about giving any other opinions. But I'm sure you will do it much more eloquently (laughs) than me. I don't know that I'll do it eloquently, but yeah, definitely have opinions. I think uh, I I would start right with that, what you sort of just finished with, um, and just echo it, that they're both very much about families. at odds with each other at times, struggling um, and in in certain ways climbing the ladder a little bit. I mean, Monk's character is actually mm. pretty well off. You got two doctors in the family. It sounds like they, they they have a sort of a live-in assistant or servant in their house in the form of Lorraine. Um, so 
uh, it's a very well-to-do family, um, but he still needs money. Right? So they're, they're common problems for like all families. So they're both very much about family. Yeah, and that's, that's really, that's not the kind of the average black family that you see on screen. Exactly. Is it? So I, was, I, was, I was very happy to see that, that he goes back home and they've got a swimming pool. It's a beautiful old house <laughs> in some leafy part of Boston. Um, you know, he goes to see his sister. She's a doctor. And then the brother comes back when, when she dies and he's a doctor. Um, so it's, yeah, it was, it, it goes against stereotype there in a film that really plays on the stereotypes and types and, and gets us thinking about them. Um, the other thing for me is really important with this identity piece. And it comes back to that shoe moment that we just talked about a few minutes ago, like just trying to define your identity through the lens of white America. I think black Americans are very very often trying to fit themselves into white society. And there's all this assimilationist talk in Raisin in the Sun. And there's also in Raisin in the Sun, there's this wonderful thing about um, the, the, is it Asagai? Asagai, I guess. Asagai? Asagai, the character, the Nigerian character talks about heritage a lot. And, you know, a lot of black Americans cannot, tell us they're they just don't know where they came from originally in terms ah. of the whole slave trade um and lena miss what does she do she mistakes nigeria for liberia because she thinks oh that's the place where people <laughs> went back and, and created a black um country in uh africa uh, for former slaves um so this idea that their identity has been stolen from them in a way and um, it's almost like it's stolen back in American fiction where this is this is your story. It's like white America saying, this is your story. This The story that we mm. want to hear is not a true story. It's how we want to think about you or how we want to enjoy you as entertainment. Um, so it's another way of stealing identity. The first way of, you know, the Middle Passage and just taking uh, folks randomly from Africa and then not telling them, not, not being able to offer history, not being able to tell them who, you know, where they came from. You're stealing identity, and then you're stealing identity identity to this day in terms of you know what passes as a Black American art. I think so. I think there's a really good identity piece in there uh, to be teased out as well. Um, and the thing that really amazed me about American fiction is just how um, I guess how adroitly it sort of navigates this this seam of cultural criticism because it definitely says a lot about America and right. you know, where we are. But it also is, it is a very mainstream film in some ways. Like it really, it's entertaining. We laughed a lot, <laughs> um, but all the criticisms are spot on. There's no hiding it. Um, and I, I just think it's hard to do that in film. And, uh, you know, I think this film is doing pretty well and making some money, but it's, it's definitely, you know, it's critical of American society. Um, and it doesn't really hold back much, but at the same time, it's, it's funny. It's entertaining. And, uh, so, some things that resonated for me were actually the way it was shot. This American fiction is sort of a writer's film. Um, right. Obviously, he's, he's steeped in, in television writing, and it's almost as if it's intentionally less cinematic. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, there's nothing flashy. This is not a film about camera moves or flashy editing or anything like that. And it really pays off at the end because there are these three different endings. And all of a sudden it goes from being a non-flashy film to when Monk's book is being 
uh, adapted for the screen with that 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 pretentious uh, producer that you mentioned earlier. Um, it becomes crane shots and drone shots. It looks very <laughs> Hollywood, and it wouldn't it wouldn't work if the rest of the film were this big production piece. But because it's very restrained and it focuses a lot on the characters and the story and the writing, essentially, um, those scenes pay off at the end because they're over the top Hollywood. Um, and it just shows how, um, again, sort of the fantasy of um, how we envision, I think, Black American life and that 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 that, that pathology uh, lifestyle, that gangster uh, uh, culture, uh, shows how we we've turned that into entertainment and basically again stolen identity somehow. So there's a lot of this stealing identity that comes up for me, probably more so in. American fiction, but I think it's there in the in the terms of the, the in terms of uh, the visits from Lindner from the Village Improvement Association in Raisin in the Sun, and also just coming back to the shoes, the way that that Walter's trying to fit into the society, and he's trying to tell um, uh, George that he's better, he's at least better than someone in the country. You know, he's like higher up than someone, even though he's struggling. <laughs> um, so there, there are these identity pieces that I think uh, come through uh, throughout both pieces, both films that are I think are kind of a touchstone for both so that would be part of my synthesis anyway that is very perceptive i didn't yeah i did not spot that until you pointed it out that's very perceptive there's also this piece i think um of gaming the system right monk does it very uh very deftly i think um where he's trying to you know rig a system that's rigged against him and i think walter's doing the same thing so the protagonists are are, they both have these ideas of somehow you know pulling one over on other people by um, (laughs) opening up the liquor store moving this money around or by writing this book that's tailor-made for for publishers who want something that he's actually parodying so i think there's also this um this how the system is rigged against characters um and it's interesting because they come the two protagonists or the two main characters i guess come from different socioeconomic backgrounds but they're still both feel like there's there's a system to rig or be rigged by or i love it when walter says uh get taken or what be took the the takers yeah took be the taker or be the token be the token yeah. <laughs> um and the last thing i would say is that um for me we just talked about endings on a recent podcast and uh, American fiction does this wonderful thing where they give you three different endings <laughs> um and they're they're great and they do they they settle on the sort of the bloodiest most uh Hollywood one and I think it works really really well um but it's nice to have these other options you and you realize oh yeah endings are important and uh but there's also this, you know, we talk about opening and closing scenes. In that last scene, he's driving away. Actually, his brother is driving him away from mm. uh, the most artificial thing you can be driven away from, which is like an L.A. studio <laughs> yes. uh, lot, right? Uh, he's leaving Hollywood, and he sees there's a well, probably an extra who's dressed up probably as a sharecropper or a cotton picker um, for a, some movie being made, and they get in the convertible and cliff his brother who you would have eliminated from the film, by the way. Cliff drives him <laughs> off into the Just sunset. what I know. <laughs> but he's driving him away from Hollywood, which is really uh, pretty interesting to me. But I, th- I think the film actually starts in Hollywood, too, doesn't it? He, like, teaches... I think he teaches in Los Angeles or... Yeah. And then he goes back to Boston from L.A. So. Got that guy who's dressed as a sharecropper. He does, like, some gang signs, doesn't he, as well? <laughs> <for kind of, laughs> yeah. To sort of acknowledge um, Monk. Yeah, so that film ends very well. And then I think, you know... We don't end on Walter Jr. and Raisin in the Sun, but we end on uh, Mama Lena leaving this apartment that she's been in for uh, counting. It looks like it's 40 years or something like that, this tiny space 
uh, finally leaving it and Walter sort of leading her away too, which is on the, on the masculinity front. I think that was the whole thing. He had to step up and be a man and, uh. and take the place of his father. And he finally does. So, so those are some final synthetic thoughts. Ooh, can you say that? Synthetic so- thoughts. I think I think, I think we can now. We definitely can now. <laughs> I'm going to rename the section now. It's synthetic thoughts from here on forever. Um, so, Carl, thanks for recommending these films. This oh, has good. been a great pairing. Yeah. Outstanding double bill. Yeah. We have just got enough time to talk about oh, yeah. what else is playing Ooh. at this theatre. I'm going to force you to go first this time. Sure. What, uh, sure. What, which, which, I think I force you to go first every time, don't that's I? Do what, I, I think? Th- yeah, that's why I got ahead yeah. and forced you to be who am I first. <laughs> so what, what, what else has been playing at your theatre? Um, I've done pretty well. We've had, uh, I think we've had three weeks between recordings for us. So it's um, going back probably about three weeks now. I saw Origin, which is the new Anna DuVernay film, ah, which right, is just great. a must-see. And it's about things that uh, we have definitely talked about in terms of... Uh, the, the podcast, um, and probably more off podcast, but uh, it's really about like hierarchy. It's based on a book called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, and she mm-hmm. draws these wonderful um, comparisons or links between um, civil rights and racism in this country as well as um, how the, the Nazis basically used the American playbook to... Um, set up the concentration camps and sort of slowly oh. take away um, Jewish rights in Germany and, and Europe, and then also the the more traditional entrenched caste system in India. And mm. she does this wise thing where she sort of avoids the racism and she talks about the problems um, in societies from this hierarchical perspective and just, and based on caste. It's more about position in society and it. it also, their you know, skin color gets dragged into that, I think, but she really does this this very interesting um, focus on what, what brings these three cultures together and mm. finds that it's more about um, more about like caste and position and hierarchy than it is about um, the, than it is about skin color. So, oh. race, it's a must see in my mind we might see it and talk about it on the yeah, podcast okay. or it'll come up but I'd recommend that. that that's absolutely essential viewing in my mind um, Portland Museum of Art it came out there <laughs> first yes and then the next week I saw another film at the Portland Museum of Art um, <laughs> a Danish film called The Promised Land I don't know if anyone's going to be able to see this but um, look for it it'll probably be on one of the streamers eventually um, it's great it's about um a man, a, like a former soldier, who gets permission from the Danish king to settle the heath. It sounds like it's northern Denmark or something like that. It's hard to really place it. Um, this is a, it's a western. It's a western yeah. epic. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about um, Once Upon a Time in the West when, and Killers of the Flower Moon would have paired up with those guys really well. And it's shorter, two hours seven minutes. Um, Great film with one of the best protagonists I've seen um, on screen in years. Just an absolute bastard, and uh, he really drives <laughs> the story. But it's all about settling, you know, and trying to set up a, a basically a settlement where they're going to – he wants to farm potatoes in the heath, and no one's been able to do it. But it's all about sort of like serving the king who just wants someone out there so that he can claim the land. 
and then pissing off this neighbor who's very, very wealthy. He's got a castle right next door, like at the edge of the heath. Um, and he's mad at the, the former um, soldier for uh, taking away his land. Um, yeah, really good. The promised land. Well, even I know that it's unwise to cheese off your neighbour if they live in a castle. Yeah. That's, 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 that's just one of those warning signs yeah. I would take, yes. Um, uh, as usual, what's been playing at my theatre is far less highbrow Ooh. than what's been playing at your theatre. Um, we uh, we have had a three-month free trial of Apple TV oh, and have broadly found it fairly disappointing. Uh, we've tried to watch Ted Lasso and got through uh, two episodes that just can't really watch anymore. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I think you know, maybe that looks great to a, to a North American eye, but to yeah. a British eye, it's... It, um, it, just yeah. makes us all cringe. <laughs> um, so, yeah, ha- have abandoned that. Instead, we watched all the episodes of Hello Tomorrow, oh. uh, which is a kind of a Billy Crudup 1950s kind of retro future sci-fi drama comedy about um, some shysters who are selling fake real estate on the moon in the 1950s. Oh. Um, and uh, is it a great story? Not really. Has it got great performances there? Fine. Is it um, you know, full of suspense and excitement and great laughs? Well, not really. Yeah. But I tell you what, the production design is fantastic. Oh, yeah. So I've been really, really enjoying this kind of retro future 1950s vibe. Oh, on Hello Tomorrow from Apple TV. Oh, and good. best of all, the episodes are only half an hour long. Oh, so we can nice. all sit down after tea and we can watch you know, one episode of Hello Tomorrow and oh. get through it. So we managed to get through all of that. Oh, nice. Um, and then yeah, the only other cultural thing I've done in the last uh, three weeks then um, that's kind of worth mentioning is uh, we had a few days in Paris. Mm. We went to the Musée Rodin, uh, oh, so, which is a great museum full of, um, full of uh, yeah. Rodin sculptures. Awesome. Uh, but, the main takeaway I took from that, uh, first of all, Rodin, oh, my goodness, what a fantastic sculpture, yeah. just incredible. But um, reading between the lines, I reckon Rodin was a bit of an old pervert, though, because yeah. it, it struck me that there must have been an awful lot of, hello, my name's Rodin, why don't you come to my studio and take your clothes off? There's yeah. an awful lot of people taking their clothes off. Um but, uh, well, good sculpture, so um, I'm not going to ask too many questions, but I suspect um, I suspect he was a bit of an old perv. Yes, there's a great film about that. He, what's the name of the, he, he worked with a young woman who was, I think his student then became his lover. Is it Claudine Claudel or something like that? Um, it's a Rodin film. Did he get film. to take her clothes off a lot? Uh, sh- yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> sexy film. Well, you know... <laughs> Sculptures, there's very, very, very rarely much clothing in the average sculpture. And I think uh, Rodin, yeah. My, my daughter was pointing out, but surely it would be more skillful to sculpt people wearing long flowing robes. Yeah, yeah. And yet, yet somehow all these sculptures, yeah. all their clothes seem to have fallen off. Yeah, the wet drapery. Uh, why is that, Father? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's called Camille Claudel. Camille Claudel right. is a wonderful film about Rodin. Of course, it has Gérard Depardieu ah, playing okay. Rodin, which... Kind of makes it even more pervy, I suppose. So yeah, I yes. think uh, well cast there. But uh, yeah, it's a great film. I loved it, and it's oh, I love the images of the Eiffel Tower. It takes place at a time when they're constructing the Eiffel Tower, so mm. you get to see the Eiffel Tower sort of, it, at least by CGI standards, uh, recreated. Um, but that is it. That's a wonderful museum. It's, I think it's his old house, isn't it? Or it is. Yes. Yeah, he lived in a nice place. Yeah, and the yeah. garden. The gardens are gorgeous. It's one of those yeah great museums where you really see where the artist lived and maybe worked a little bit, and then they've preserved it. It's beautiful. 
Nice. Yeah, yeah, building is so lovely. It even looks nice in the rain. Yeah. Uh, and it did rain pretty much continuously while we That's were there. Paris, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love you. Yeah. I, I might drop one more title in because I did watch this. Oh, I, always, always, always one-upping yeah, me. Sorry. No, but this is, I think that you might be interested in this. I saw something, I think it was on Netflix. It's called Live to 100, um, Discover the Blue Zones or something like that. The Blue Zones. Okay. Okay. Um, Dan, I think his name's Dan Butner. Um, he had cycled across the world, so he knew a lot of these places, and he, he became really infatuated with this idea that some places have more centenarians than others, and he wanted mm. to discover what was keeping them alive so long. So he goes to these five or six different places around the planet and shows you what they're eating, what they're doing in their social lives, what they do for exercise, and what, what their ethos is, and... Um, it's really it's only four episodes, so it's and they're about thirty or forty minutes each. So it's, I think everyone should watch it. It's just great about healthy living and how we we can make and remake societies that are just healthier for us. I I don't know that anyone wants to live till a hundred and five or whatever, but as things are now, but um, maybe someday. Um, and and did he maybe spot the enormous, uh, highly technological hospitals that he was cycling past on, on his way to these? <laughs> he talks about that a little bit, but I don't think his key to living longer and healthier is modern medicine. So, oh. Yeah, it's good. And you know, he's got uh, this horseback rider in, Port- in no, it's Costa Rica, 105 years old, herding his uh, livestock, jumping mm. up on a horse. It's over a hundred years old, so I mean, it's it's really, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. I liked it a lot, and I took away a lot of things from a, 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 like just a personal health perspective. So yeah, check out the Blue Zone. But I think the the that's like the subtitle. The actual title is "Live to One Hundred, which I think is I think the Blue Zones. Is Surely better. the take home message should be: if you want to live to one hundred, be evil, because you know the, the, it's always the good ones who die young, isn't it? Oh, that's what they say. Whenever you get these obituaries of people who live to a hundred, they've all been bad. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he did. He didn't say that in the program. He didn't say that. I he didn't say that. Second season, season two. <laughs> um, we'll quickly do the socials on Instagram. We yeah. are at Two Real Cinema Club. Uh, read the blog, blog at Two Real Cinema Club dot com. Comment on our YouTube channel or email us. We love your emails. Two Real Cinema Club at gmail dot com. Tell your friends about us. Leave a review if you can. It helps us out. Next time, yeah. uh, we're, we're going to get we're going to go to the popcorn counter next week. But yeah. the week after that. Uh, we are watching uh, more Nazis. It's zone of interest. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see what um, uh, I was going to say. Paul Michael Glazer, but it's not Paul Michael Glazer. John, was, Jonathan was, Glazer. Jonathan Glazer. Yeah. yeah, Paul Michael Glazer was in Disgusting and Hutch. Oh God, thank you. Uh, yeah, so yeah. so oh. it'd be interesting to see what David Soul has made of of uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the Holocaust. Um, uh, and all, that, that joke is aging badly already. I'll probably cut that out later. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> uh, and we will see you next time. Goodbye, everyone. 